So this evening we'll uh, have a, a couple of relatively short uh, talks. So I'll talk for around 20 minutes and, and Jenny will then do the same. Um, and then we'll have some time for some uh, questions that may be coming out of your practice or things around mindfulness that you're uh, wondering about and have always wanted to ask and explore. And so these evening talks really are a, a chance to, to widen the sense of what we're doing. I mean, I think sometimes on retreat we can get quite caught up with what's immediate. Uh, sitting with our knee that's you know, got a twinge in it or an aching back or a wandering mind. And somehow the talks, I think, are a way of uh, bringing us back to the big picture of what mindfulness practice is, is all around. Um, and so what I wanted to talk about uh, is something that John Kabat-Zinn discusses in Full Catastrophe Living, which are called the, the attitudinal foundations of mindfulness, or the attitudes that really serve our practice. And so uh, I'll explore those uh, with you. Um, and the first of these is, is non-judging. And this is very famously part of uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness. You know, he talks about it as a present moment awareness and an awareness that's non-judgmental. Uh, and I think it's quite interesting to tease out and explore what that really means. Because uh, it seems to me in, in English in general, uh, we have this feeling, oh, you're being very judgmental. And we can see being judgmental as a somewhat kind of negative thing. It's a, a pejorative thing to say at somebody. You know, try not to be so judgmental. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we might talk about somebody as having good judgment. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting uh, kind of concept. And it's even a sort of paradox there. You know, what's this, this judgment or judgmental? What's the difference? And I think this, this really feeds into to mindfulness. So, as I understand it, when he talks about mindfulness being uh, non-judgmental, it's the feeling that really whatever arises in our experience, we can turn towards, we can meet, we can welcome. You know, sometimes we talk about this as a, as a welcoming awareness. So you may think, well, I've come on retreat and I want to feel, well, what would the list be? We could start putting them up, all the ideals of how we, we'd like to be wise, compassionate, kind. Uh, and then you find that, that you're really irritated about uh, something going on in your work or you're quite fed up about situation in your family or you notice that that friend of yours who's had something really good happen to them Actually, there's quite a lot of envy about that. <laughs> and so sometimes then when we practice, it was a certain mindset, it's like, well, what's going on? You know, all these things I want, wisdom, compassion, kindness, and then all these things I've got, sorrow, grief, anger, irritation, bad back, etc. So this non-judgmental is a real invitation to turn towards all of these aspects of our experience. You know, when we feel a sense of, of anger or a sense of grief and sorrow, you know, not to sort of approach that thinking, oh, this shouldn't be here, 
This isn't what I came on retreat for. This isn't what I practice for. But to open to it. And very often we teach that opening to it involves bringing the attention into the body. Perhaps particularly this area of the body around the torso, you know, the chest, solar plexus, belly, and feeling what's going on around all of these strong uh, emotions, really, really connecting with them, sometimes underneath the storyline. Um, another of my uh, favorite stories to share is actually something that my, my dad told me from a book he's got called The Selfish Pig's Guide to Caring, which is, if, you're, if you are a carer, it's a great book. One little recommendation for you. If you're not a carer, probably still a great book. Uh, but what, one of the things it mentions in this book is just normalizing how carers might have uh, what sound like quite shocking thoughts towards the person that they're caring for. You know, I could just push this person now. And if people have these thoughts come up, it's almost quite understandable to think, well, I don't want that thought. I'm supposed to be caring. Where did that come from? Or that we might interpret that as meaning we're a particular kind of person. It might build some image of who we are or what we're about from a fleeting thought that's just popped into the mind. Uh, and what this book says, and it's very much in, in a line with the mindfulness, is that we can simply notice. We can simply notice that thought. It comes and goes. It doesn't define us. It's not who we are. Uh, and then it has no power. And, and it's really helpful just to know all kinds of weird and wonderful things can pass through our minds. And so if you've had those in the last 24 hours, you know, you're, you're among friends. <laughs> yeah. There's a quite nice thing about sitting for hours and hours and hours. In the end, you see it all, you know. <laughs> all of these different thoughts and things that come and go. So we welcome non-judgmental awareness. But just to, to note that this doesn't mean we lose a sense of discernment. Uh, Jenny was telling me uh, earlier that uh, when Christina Feldman now talks about mindfulness, she can include this sense of discernment in it. So clearly then, if we're in a caring situation and we notice this thought pops up, I could just push this person. Of course, we're not, you know, the non-judgmental allows it to be not judging ourselves, not blaming, not condemning, it's just a thought. But also the discernment to see, actually, this is you know, not a wise thing to, to act on. Yeah. Uh, and again, if you think of the eight-week course, when we get to week seven and we think about what nourishes us and what depletes us, degree of discernment there. You know, this non-judgmental doesn't mean every, everything's bland. We can still tell and use our intelligence and see clearly. Yeah, so with mindfulness we can let go of being judgmental and cultivate good judgment and hold that paradox in mind. The second one of these qualities is, is patience. So we can be patient with what's happening in our body. Lots of us will have had, in fact, probably bet, uh, almost all of us will have had difficult sensations in the body to some degree or another today, some kind of sense of, of struggle, because we're sitting for, for longer than, than we usually would. So some patience with our body. Patience with our, our busy minds. 
Um, as I said to uh, one of the groups I sometimes see coming on retreat is a little bit like we've been driving the car of our lives and then we come on retreat and when we're on retreat we're no longer accelerating so we've taken the foot off the accelerator but of course the momentum of the car continues so when all of these thoughts and things are buzzing around I think it's really helpful not to try too hard to, to sort of calm down. We might have the idea, if I was better at mindfulness, there'd be a magic technique. 9.30 on the Saturday morning, I'd just supercharge mindfulness and whew, everything going on, my family work just forgotten and I'm just with the breath. And wow. Then I'll have made it as a mindfulness person. So then we might feel a bit of a failure if it, you know, so it can keep going on all day. So I like this image of a car because what I would suggest we're not doing is an emergency stop. <laughs> you know, it's not a mindfulness practice, not screeching on the brakes and coming to a stillness like that. But we just, you know, there's the things going on and gradually, slowly, gently, we allow things to calm and to settle. And the other thing that makes me smile a little about patience is I think we can be patient with our impatience. So again, we have to hold these teachings wisely. When it says patience, and then you notice you're in the queue for the dinner, and you're, oh, when are they going to come on? Oh, I'm supposed to be patient. I've got it wrong. Um, I had a, uh, an experience uh, uh, on a train once. Again, I talk about it a lot, but it just seems to be helpful. Where uh, it was a very crowded train, and I was going to get off this, this, this train and... Um, I wasn't quite sure if the person in front of me was just standing there or was also getting off. So probably a bit unconsciously, I might have edged a bit um, closer towards him. And uh, he turned around to me and said, hang on, mate, we're all getting off here. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. I didn't mean to encroach it. I didn't say all this, obviously. How unfair. Doesn't he know? I'm a meditation teacher. I'm a good person. How can he think? He thinks I'm some yob who's pushing in. What's going on? A right to my MP. And then there was a little bit of a thought, oh, you know, don't, don't be bothered, don't be, be mindful, don't, don't, don't let it bother you. And I just saw in that moment that, that actually, in a way, the truth was I was bothered. <laughs> and so the mindfulness came in, in a way, in a different, a different place. It wasn't, I was so mindful of what he said that I wasn't bothered. It was more, I was mindful of what he said I was mindful of the fact my heart was beating more quickly. My shoulders had tensed. I was mindful of the thoughts about how unfair it was. And yet somehow all of that was just fine. And then he got off, I got off, and within a minute or so the whole thing had passed. Can you see the difference? If patience is a demand, I should be patient. Not supposed to be affected. <laughs> well, when I've tried to do that, and you know, Big voice, all the other stuff. You are affected. Don't forget. Don't ignore me. <laughs> but actually, if we can just let it be there, it's like a ripple in the body mind. Comes and goes. Quicker heartbeat, tighter shoulders, few thoughts, gone. Um, the third of these qualities that, that John Kabat Zinn talks about is, uh, is trust. And I think this is really pointing to 
uh, a sense of, of trusting our basic wholeness as we practice. So we may come to practice with the idea that we're a little bit broken or we need to be fixed or there's bits of us that are not acceptable. And actually to practice with this feeling of a real trust in our basic wholeness, goodness you could say, uh, really means practice is held in quite a different way. So perhaps if I return to that example of the, you know, the thought, uh, the, the care I might have, if I could just push this person. If we can feel a, a sort of basic sense of completeness, okayness, then within that context, then yeah, of course we can see it's just a thought. But the more we're practicing with a sense, oh, maybe there's something really wrong with me, then that same thought is just held in a different way. Oh, here it is. This is proof I'm not quite up to it. And so it's a little bit like, you know, we practice in the sounds and thoughts meditation where, you know, the thoughts come and go, sounds come and go, and we begin to get a, a feeling of what's around it all. You know, a wider, broader, spacious awareness. And so that all of the things that sometimes maybe feel troubling, you know, the sorrow, the grief, the envy, the agitation, restlessness. Through our practice we can discern more and more that of course all of these things are around and they're very powerful aspects of our experience, but they're, they're experienced in a bigger space. And we can begin to trust that that bigger space that can, can hold all of those things. And that, that neat, neatly leads into the fourth of these qualities, which is non-striving. Again, it's an interesting one, this, you know, what's striving? What's that? <laughs> I think um, sometimes in, in the, the Buddhist scriptures, uh, there's actually an invitation to strive, you know, with mindfulness, strive on, one translation. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to think what's, you know, what's being spoken about here. And certainly a degree of effort and energy and enthusiasm and aspiration for our practice is absolutely, uh, well, essential and helpful. Have some energy for it. Yeah, I'm really going to give myself to this. I really want to see what this is about. You know, it's not, oh, well, I could do a bit of mindfulness if I feel like it. But something in our belly is really, wow, this is something worth doing. It's so helpful. But the, the striving, I think, in a, in a sense that, that's not so helpful is when we're, we're approaching our experience all the time as if, you know, it, it needs to be changed, altered, improved. We can get into what we may see as a kind of self-improvement project. It's all you know, predicated on, on certain assumptions. I'm not good enough as I am. I need to do this mindfulness and then at some time in the future I will be this ideal person that I aspire to be. And this non-striving attitude is really allowing us to step out of that whole way of being. All of the assumptions that are bound up in that. Letting go of that initial assumption that I'm not good enough.
And it really gives us some space to, to turn towards and befriend and be curious with all sorts of aspects of our experience. A certain way in which we might strive or something that can feel like striving is actually a kind of pushing at our experience. Whereas the non-striving is, a, is an opening to and exploring And the fifth of these qualities is having a beginner's mind, a freshness to experience. I don't know if you, you had this thought sometimes that the mind of an expert feels a little bit, or may feel a little bit closed. You know, I know it all. It's finished, it's pre-packaged, it's classified, it's on the shelf. You know, I know everything there is to know about mindfulness. I mean, what a shame, really, if we start to feel that. You know, the beginner's mind has got open, full of wonder. I had this uh, experience as a, as a teenager of, of reading a, a book about meditation and, it, uh, and then feeling quite strongly, just going out for a walk afterwards and looking at a tree. And this tree, I just felt like I'd never seen a tree in this way before. It just says, wow. Look at that, you know, the leaves and the branches and the trunk and the, uh, really to be present with the tree and it was just like completely different. I, I was just absolutely blown away by it, this experience. <laughs> and then I remember, I don't know if it was the next day or some days after, I went back to the tree and thought, let's do that again. <laughs> of course it doesn't work <laughs> because the beginner's mind is lost. So rather than just the actual wonder of just taking in this tree, coming to it with the mind of the expert, I now know a technique, how to feel good, just look at the tree and come on. <laughs> and then we're frustrated. So again, you may have had this experience in meditation, that when we've had some experiences of calm and stillness in practice, we can go for quite long periods of wanting it back and, and, the, and the frustration around that. So the beginner's mind is just really letting go of that. What's, what's here? What's fresh? What's now? The sixth of these qualities is acceptance. And again, this is one that we hold carefully. As you can see with many of these, I've been saying, you know, let's be intelligent how we hold this. So uh, some near enemies of acceptance would be kind of resignation, giving up, lack of motivation. Um, th this acceptance doesn't at all mean accepting the unacceptable. But it does mean in whatever moment we're in, we can say, well, this is the way it is in this moment. You know, the, the sensations in the body, rather than feeling, again, an ideal. I, I want to have particular, I want to just have those lovely sensations in the body where it feels light and airy and tingly. And I, that's what I want to feel all the time. And yet for me, and this is absolutely true, in this moment, my, just here, you know, my ankle, there's a slightly more aching sensation. I've been sitting all day. Possibly this cushion is a little lower than the one I would usually have, so there's a little pressure on my ankle. 
you know. So you can just bring something, that's okay, it's just part of this experience, just the sensation. You see the acceptance, the non-acceptance, this shouldn't be here, <laughs> you know. It's, it, the non-acceptance is a continual pushing at experience. But again, just to reiterate, because I think this is, this is very important, um, that the acceptance then opens the space for wise response. For wise response. You know, something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment, actually, it's still slightly unformed, so I shall share it with you a little bit, but it's really just how important it is to, to listen to and honour our experience. And so particularly, um, you know, let's say if you have particular repetitive thoughts around something, sometimes with mindfulness we might just think, well, you know, thoughts are not facts, see them, let them come, go, come back to the breath, you know. But I'm also very interested in the idea of really listening. Well, what's, what's around, particularly if they're around a long time, that they may, may be giving us some kind of message, something needs to be heard, and maybe that something does need to change outwardly. Um, and and different people different people need to learn these lessons in different ways. I mean, I, I again personal confession time. I think I, I have certainly years ago interpreted the acceptance in in perhaps a slightly passive way. I remember once I was practicing somewhere and I had a, a room and the light bulb went and I, I got used to sitting in the dark. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> this is taking acceptance a bit, a bit too far. There's a famous Thai teacher who talks about letting go, and then somebody had a hole in the roof of his where he was meditating, and he said, well, "What are you doing? You're st- st- sitting here, and all the rain's coming in." Ah, oh, but you teach us about letting go, letting go. Yeah, but you can still fix your roof. You know? <laughs> so again, and I, I think it's very. In- Fascinating, you know, this serenity prayer in many of the eight-week courses. I know it's got a much longer history than that. You know, the courage to change what can be changed and the patience or serenity to accept what can't and the wisdom to know the difference. There's a lifetime's teaching in that. And I certainly know for me in my life, accepting too much. (laughs) Now I'm trying to change what really should be accepted. (laughs) Okay, come back the other way. Um, and then finally, letting go. So, there's a, a story that uh, John Kabat-Zinn um, tells of, of monkey traps that they use in uh, Asia sometimes. And it, it's quite a sobering story, actually. I think when I really feel this, it, quite a kind of emotional charge to it. But the, these monkey traps, I don't know if you know how they work, but I think they cut a coconut in half and they make a hole that's um, it's small enough that the, the hand can go in, but um, not big enough that the fist can come out, if that makes sense. So you can, you, the monkey can put the hand in, but when they grasp, they put a banana in there, something like some food, but when they grasp that and then the fist, they can't get out again. That makes sense. So, uh, and then they'll kind of nail this to to something. So all the the monkey would need to do to escape the trap is to let go, to open the hand, and then to take the hand out. But because they're holding the food and the food that they want, 
you know, the fist stays like that, and they just pull and pull and pull, and they can't get out. There's something really quite quite poignant about that, and how we may sometimes be in those situations in in our lives. And letting go again, I think we can be subtle about how we hold this teaching. I'm not sure it's something we can do as an act of will. Right, I'm going to let go. (laughs) It's perhaps more something that happens. We cultivate the conditions in which letting go happens. And how do we do that? I think often it's about paying attention again and again and again to the pain of holding on. Yeah. So sometimes again that's when we're bringing the attention into the body maybe when there's a lot of tension, say around the shoulders. We're just noticing that without necessarily the intention to sort of get rid of it. And noticing, noticing, and sometimes you just notice. Ah, there's just a kind of release that happens. But if we try to make that, it doesn't always work. It's not like a kind of a willpower thing. So in that way we can see our practice almost as like like gardening. You know, we're planting the seeds, we're doing some weeding, but we're not fully responsible for when the flowers bloom. So I just want to say a little bit, going back in time somewhat, about the, the tradition that um, John Kabat-Zinn took this um, particular practice of mindfulness from. I mean, we, we talk about John Kabat-Zinn quite a lot because he was the first person pretty much to, to take what he had been learning within a Buddhist context and to apply it within medicine and healthcare. Um, But I think it's just worth, I mean, Buddhism covers a huge multitude of different approaches and schools, but if you really look at some of the teachings of the Buddha, I would say, I heard Christina Feldman say this the other day, one of our teachers who teaches here, that the Buddha was in many ways a very early psychologist before there was such a term. He just looked at his own mind, his own experience, how suffering happened, how freedom from suffering happened, and the experience of other people he knew. And he just came to a very profound understanding of how the mind works, how we cause ourselves unnecessary distress on top of the inevitable pain and and grief of life. And he articulated that and taught that. And... So although over the centuries this has come to be a a major world religion with all kinds of beliefs and rituals and temples, um, that doesn't seem to be where it it began. And certainly in the tradition that John Kabat-Zinn was teaching in, and Christina was one of his teachers 30-something years ago, um, 
there's more emphasis perhaps on the psychology that the Buddha was teaching. So what John Kabat-Zinn thought, he was on a retreat in 1979 in the US. And um, he just had this moment where he asked himself, how could I take the essence of what I'm learning here, something as, as meaningful, as, as beautiful as this, this teaching of the Buddha, this pra- these practices, and bring it into the world in a way that doesn't dilute it or distort it, but is freed from all the cultural and religious accretions, really. Um, it's not locked into a traditional framework that makes it impenetrable for the vast majority of people in the West, in the small town in Massachusetts where he was working. Um, people who he knew were suffering and might find this practice liberating and helpful. So that was his little insight. Was there a way of doing that? And he talked to the teachers and he looked at you know, what he knew about meditation. He also was a yoga practitioner. And he developed the, the eight-week course that we now call Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. And other courses like Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy and other eight-week courses have gradually been developed from that initial vision, really. And... Uh, Sort of, yeah, freeing something up from being, you know, tied up in a spiritual tradition where only a certain number of people would ever find it, really. So I'll say a few things about the Buddhist tradition and what the Buddha taught, but I just want to really put it in that context that, you know, I really see the Buddha as a psychologist and really someone who really understood the human mind and what we're doing in mindfulness is is making that more accessible in a secular non-sectarian, non-religious context that is available to people of all faiths or or none. So in the tradition, um, there are generally seen meditation, which I suppose is the kind of basic practice, although there's more obviously to mindfulness than meditation, but it's seen as having three aspects really. So the first is bringing the mind into some degree of calmness and stillness. Obviously only some degree, but a general kind of focusing, coming onto the breath, settling down, getting a little bit of perspective from the busy day-to-day mind. And then using this uh, clarity, this this, um, stillness of mind to to inquire into our experience and particularly to notice how we relate to our experience. So um, what we gradually gain insight into, and I think that the structure of the eight-week course really supports this, is we gain insight into our habitual tendencies, into the way we, we often act that causes us suffering. So Jake mentioned Thoughts Aren't Facts, which is the name of session six of of MBCT. So one of our habitual tendencies is often to believe our thoughts, to think they are facts. I'm thinking this, it must be true. And so with that little bit of clarity, we can start to question which of our thoughts are actually wise, discerning thoughts, and which are just story and proliferation and rumination. Um, So that once we can see that more clearly, we start to free ourselves from that extra layer of unnecessary suffering. And the third aspect of meditation is cultivating a friendly attitude. 
um, an attitude of compassion and friendliness towards ourselves and towards others and all beings. So in, in mindfulness, perhaps we focus a little more on the second of those three, the, the really seeing our experience clearly and inquiring into it, but they're all implicit and they're all very much part of the practice. So there's the calming, the inquiring and seeing more clearly and holding it all with a very friendly and caring attitude. And all of these we cultivate. And actually the word in the ancient language of the Buddha for meditation doesn't really mean meditation. <laughs> meditation in English traditionally meant thinking about things, contemplating them. The word in, in the ancient language means cultivating, bhavana. It's, um, it's an agricultural metaphor. The Buddha lived in an agrarian society. We're planting seeds, and then we, we water them, we take care of them, we create the conditions. We cultivate calm, we cultivate insight and clarity, we cultivate compassion. And I think that, for me, that the, the cultivation metaphor really fits with some of those qualities of patience and non-striving. You know, you don't plant the seeds and then pick them up, pull them up the next day to see how the roots are doing. You just create the conditions and cultivate and, and some trust that they'll begin to put forth shoots. So... Um, these different aspects of meditation all feed into mindfulness. And it, just to remind you again of the perhaps the most famous definition or description of mindfulness from John Kabat-Zinn, which is the, the awareness that we cultivate by paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So on purpose to me is just like we're choosing to some degree where we place our attention. We're not choosing entirely, because as we know, the mind gets pulled away. Um, but, you know, we're always paying attention to something, and often it's daydreams or worries or random thoughts. So there's just a little more sense of choosing where to place our attention. In the present moment, the present moment is usually manageable. You know, even when we're suffering, even when there's difficulty, if we don't add to it with past regrets, um, memories, and, and, and future anticipation and worry, it's easier to manage what's happening. If it's pleasant, we'll enjoy it more. And if it's unpleasant, we can be more steady with it if we don't extend so much into the past and future. And non-judgmentally, which Jake has talked about. So I think there are two important aspects to, to this. Um, there's the present moment awareness and often in the popular press when we see, read things about mindfulness that's what it focuses on, being present, being in the now. But there's also this very important aspect of relating to our experience as it is. So we're not just being present but we're actually looking at how are we relating to our experience, are we resisting it? Are we pushing it away if it's not how we'd like it to be? Or are we trying to hold on to it if it is how we'd like it to be? Or are we allowing things to, to come and go? And, and yeah, we can be discerning and make some choices about, about things, but kind of accepting that ultimately things aren't in our control. So Christina's uh, definition that, that Jake mentioned, one one description that she came up with in a retreat here a year or so ago 
She defined mindfulness as the willingness and the capacity to be equally near all events and experience with kindness, curiosity and discernment. And I think those three, kindness, curiosity, even when things are difficult, can we be curious, can we be interested? And discernment, you know, proliferating negative thoughts are not helpful. So although we don't fight them, we don't judge ourselves for having them, we might choose not to get lost in them, to come back. Um, so there is that, that sense of, of discernment. And it's very hard to, to, you know, mindfulness covers a huge amount. We could say a lot about it. It's very hard to define, but the, the Buddha gave some nice metaphors which can help to, to maybe clarify the meaning a little. So he likened, I'll just give you three of them. He gave quite a few, but he likened mindfulness to a post with wild animals tethered to it. So you tie the animals up to the post, and for quite a while they pull and they try to get away and they struggle. And at a certain point, they become docile, they settle down, they realize they can't get away. And uh, he, he describes this as what our senses and our mind do in meditation. So we're tying them to the post of the breath, and they struggle to get back to where they want to be. Our, our eyes want to get back to look at nice things, our thoughts want to go and whatever they want to do, our body wants, you know, gets restless, it wants to move, but gradually we come into some level of stillness and awareness. And then he also compared it to a, a, a cowherd looking after the, the flock, making sure all the cows are there, that they're not getting lost and they're not, they're not wandering into the fields. This would have obviously been a powerful metaphor in the Buddha's day. And it's interesting, it's described, the cowherd is described as leaning against a tree, just watching the flock, watching the, the, the herd, I mean, of cows. So it's a quite relaxed, it's an observational stance, he's not taking his eyes off them, but it's kind of relaxed, just open awareness of these, this herd of cows. And a third, um, so that's perhaps, you know, the first metaphor is perhaps more about the stillness, bringing the mind into some degree of stillness. The second is maybe more about seeing clearly, really observing what's happening. And the third one is more about the discernment. So he talks about mindfulness as being like the gatekeeper of a city. Um, in those days, cities would have had a wall, and at, at night the gates were closed, and everyone was inside. So during the day, the gatekeepers would watch who's coming and going. Do they live here? Do we know them? Are they enemies or friends? Um, and at first, the gatekeeper might make some mistakes if they're new to the job and let people in they shouldn't let in, and they cause trouble, so they escort them out again. And with practice, you become more discerning. What should we let in through the, through the sense gates, really, through our, 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 our senses and our mind? Um, so there's no, no use the gatekeeper letting all and sundry in because he's trying to be non-judgmental. You know, there are some people you don't want to let into the city. So I quite like those, those images. They, they may speak to you. And so, with all those in mind, um, traditionally, the Buddha talks about four areas of our experience to bring mindfulness to. Um, and really, 
you know, don't worry about trying to remember exactly what they are, but he's really talking about all of our experience, nothing, nothing being left out. Um, so I'll, I'll just go through them and say a little bit about each one. And bearing in mind that this is, it's about paying attention to our experience in these areas and also to notice, to investigate how we're relating to what's happening. Are we relating to it in a way that leads to suffering or to ease, in a way that creates more resistance and, and, and happiness or more acceptance and, and peace of mind? So the first of these four is the body probably won't be surprised to hear if you didn't already know. So both in formal sitting practice and in other postures and activities, the, really the body be is where mindfulness begins. All aspects of our physical experience, beginning with the breath. I think just because the breath, both it's with us all the time, we're always breathing throughout our life, and because it has a certain dynamic quality, it's moving. Um, it's a place we can always rest back on. Um, and it connects us into the body as a whole. Also, when we do have strong emotions or emotionally charged thoughts, we feel them in the body. So if we're aware of that, if we're really in tune with our body, we can catch difficult feelings a little earlier before they've pulled us into a whole proliferation or rumination that, that can really affect our mood. So I think without body awareness, we're more driven by our emotions and our thoughts. And the Buddha was very clear that this is to be practiced in, in any posture of the body. It's not just about sitting. He said sitting, walking, standing and reclining, which pretty much covers anything you would be doing. There are a few more specific practices that we don't necessarily do in, in, in mindfulness-based approaches, but are in the tradition. <clears throat> there may be more implicit in, in the eight-week program, but he, he talks about exploring different parts of the body um, or different elements that make up the body. So that's really about not being quite so identified with the body as, as who I am. We tend to think, this is me, you know, I'm totally identified with the body. And, and then you look in the mirror and it's looking a bit more grey and wrinkled than it was a few weeks ago. And if you really identify this as me, that's a far more, you know, that's, there's more distress in that. The body's an amazing thing, of course, but um, it, it's hard to pin ourselves down to just, just the body. Helps us to see it more just as it is, not be quite so... Yeah, caught up. I mean, our culture has all sorts of um, ideals about the body, which hardly anybody, you know, I mean, almost probably nobody looks like the bodies in magazines because they're photoshopped. We're not photoshopped, you know. So uh, if we identify with the body, we're constantly comparing and it can be deeply distressing. The Buddha also in, in the text, uh, we're invited to contemplate the impermanence of the body, the fact that it is transient, that we do die one day. And again, we don't uh, do this in, in MBSR, but um, I think it, it's implicit when we bring our attention to the body and the breath, we do perhaps start to feel the, 
you know, both the fragility of it, but also the preciousness of it. And, and uh, that can, re you know, really actually support a great appreciation for, for our experience of our lives in this moment. So the second of the, the four aspects of our experience is, is traditionally called feeling, and it means feeling not in the sense of complex emotion, but just the simple experience of pleasant, or, or we like, unpleasant, and in-between. And this is given in every experience. You know, there's nothing we can do about it. If, if you sit down in the morning and put the porridge in your mouth, you either experience it as pleasant, unpleasant, tasteless, horrible, or neutral. You can take it or leave it. And, and everything comes, all our sense experiences, everything we look at, smell, taste, touch, even our thoughts, in a way, come with, with this basic feeling tone. Um, and so our problems arise more when we, when we want only the pleasant and we want to push away the unpleasant. So bringing mindfulness to this as just an aspect of our experience can free us from that constant push-pull. It can really yeah, change our experience of, of feeling. So feeling itself is unavoidable, but we don't have to just be drawn towards the, the pleasant and pushing away the, the unpleasant. You notice this, say, in the body scan. We notice that some of our sensations are pleasant, some of them are unpleasant, some of them are really quite neutral. We hardly notice them. And the more we can just notice that, the less we're pulled by it. The, the third area that Buddha talks about is more our, our more complex emotions, our moods, really, you could say, our, our emotional mind and, and heart state. It's, it's often translated mind, but it's the emotional mind. Um, so noticing what mood we're in and how that interprets our, how that affects our interpretation of events. So if we don't notice, if we're not aware of our mood, it colors our experience, but without us really being aware of it. So for those of you who've done mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, there's a, an exercise where we look at two scenarios, which are really the same scenario. Somebody ignores you, but we manipulate it so you're in, if you're in a slightly bad mood, that tends to affect people more. They take it more personally. But if you're in quite a good mood you don't really notice, or you might be more concerned about the other person. Um, so it's worth just checking in with ourselves now and again. What mood am I in? You know, and, and how is this coloring my experience? So the, the way it's described is just to ask ourselves, is there um, wanting or, or even greed or clinging in the mind? Or are we free from this at the moment? Is there irritation or ill will in the mind? Or are we free from it? Is the mind feeling a bit contracted? Are we feeling emotionally a bit um, yeah, contracted or narrow or, or expansive and spacious? So there's a lot more I could say about that, but just having a sense of, of our mood. And then finally... Um, there's a lot more I could say about the fourth one, but uh, just noticing that the contents of our mind, really, and particularly whether what we're experiencing are, are hindrances or, or get in the way of seeing clearly. 
And there's a traditional list of, of hindrances, um, which some of you will know, uh, which I've really got time to go, go into now. But basically, they're, they're, the first two are just wanting and not wanting, or desire and, and sense desire and aversion. The second and the third and, and fourth are agitation and dullness. So it's another pair of opposites. And the last one is doubt, when we think, what on earth am I doing here anyway? What's it all about? And that's not a healthy you know, questioning, it's a kind of corrosive doubt that can sometimes get in the way of our practice. But the Buddha also offers a list of much more positive qualities that he calls the factors of awakening. And the first one is mindfulness. So is there mindfulness present in my experience? The second one is inquiring or investigating into our experience. Is that present? And then he suggests these lead to qualities like enthusiasm and joy, tranquility, um, one-pointedness, and ultimately equanimity. So really important to notice when those are present. We're very good at noticing the difficult in our experience. We're not necessarily so good at noticing when we're actually experiencing a little bit of balance of mind, equanimity, or, or some joy. <coughs> and so just briefly, finally, the, the Buddha suggests that when we are exploring our experience in this way, our body, our feeling tone of like or dislike, our moods and the contents of our experience, that we see it just as it is. The first thing he says, just seeing it as it is, the body as the body, the mind as the mind. And that we see it as part of a common human experience. So whatever we're experiencing internally, we can be sure that some other people, if not most other people, if not all other people, at some time experience the same thing. And that can just, that can actually really support acceptance and, 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 and not resisting it. And we see it as arising and passing, that we notice that our experience is actually constantly changing. Um, so that even when something's unpleasant, you know, a bit more trust that it will pass. And when something's pleasant, we can't hold on to it, but we can really enjoy it. But seeing how things come and go. And ultimately, if we really bring mindfulness to our experience, then we can let go of clinging, let go of wanting it to be different. So the Buddha doesn't tell us to be mindful in every moment 24-7. This probably isn't possible. He says, be mindful to the extent necessary to free ourselves from, from clinging, from, from aversion and from the suffering that they cause. So I'm aware of trying to pack in slightly too much in... 25 minutes, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of a whistle-stop overview of some of the way mindfulness is looked at in the tradition. So we have maybe 10 or 15 minutes for any questions, either about what we've said this evening or anything that's come up during the day. So you might want to just stretch your legs and have a little movement and just maybe reflect on whether there's anything you'd like to ask and we will have another question period tomorrow and if particularly for tomorrow if you're a little too shy to ask a question in the hall feel free to put it on a note and, and give it to us and we can bring it tomorrow
Yes. Um, when we focus awareness on the breath, yeah. and a lot of the times focus awareness uh, on, on a broader sort of sphere, including sounds and thoughts and the body as a whole, mm. um, do these two sort of ways of focusing the awareness, do they perform different functions? Um, are they, like, how, mm. how are they mm. linked? Um, mm. Mm. Are there certain times when it's wise to use one? Mm -hmm. <coughs> well, that sort of relates to what I said about yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think this is a bit relates to what I was saying about that one function of, of mindfulness or meditation is, is calming or stilling the mind and I think that's more when we bring it to one thing like the breath it doesn't have to be the breath but the breath is a particularly useful one but one a one focus of you know sometimes it's just contact maybe of the hands or in some traditions it might be a mantra or something we look at but one thing that we keep coming back to and then when when we've come into a certain amount of of stillness only a certain amount through that then the other things you describe are more open more spacious awareness and that's where we can learn a bit more about our habit patterns and if we only ever kept coming back to the breath we would get quite focused but there wouldn't be maybe that same sense of, of opening up and learning. So in terms of which you might choose in your daily practice, I would say always begin with a little bit just the breath, just with single-pointed focus, and then open up. Um, and if the mind is really, really busy and, you know, it's just very full, just we can just spend a bit more time with the breath. Um, do you want to Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I've got, I've got much more to say about that, but um, certainly in, in the Buddhist traditions there have been different teachings about this, actually, and, uh, and there is some uh, kind of disagreement, some different views, actually, and, and that some schools very much emphasize um, developing very, very strong forms of concentration. So really sticking with it, say just coming back, coming back, coming back to, say, the, the breath, uh, until the mind is, is very, very still. Um, and other traditions would talk more about developing calm and developing insight uh, together. We, we kind of almost do, the, do both at once. Um, and so, yeah, as Jenny says, I think sometimes when we sit down, it just there's so much going on. <laughs> if we try and be with sounds, thoughts, I mean, it just feels like... Uh, is that actually a Christian meditation teacher talks about the cocktail party in our heads. You can feel like that sometimes. And so if it's like that, I think it's just helpful and skillful to just simplify, calm, keep it really uh, still. Um, but yeah, when, when there's just some degree of that, the mind is, is calm. And then as we open up the awareness, that's when we, we can begin to notice all kinds of things, as Jenny's saying, the relationship to those uh, patterns where we get stuck, where we can be free, and beginning to see also the changing quality uh, of all of those things. If you think about sounds, thoughts, feelings, breath, bodily sensations, they all have this quality of change. They come and go, they come and go. And so the stronger the concentration is, the more that that, uh, that changing nature of things can become really, really, really clear. Uh, and then that's what can also free us, release that. The more we see that this is how things are, then 
the the less the tendency to want to cling and hold on to really kicks in. Does that answer your question? Good. If anybody else has uh, anything they wanted to to ask or explore. Shall I say a little something? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you can do it both ways. I think we're so fortunate these days to have so many things available. And if you find the guidance helpful, then I would say just on a practical level, use that, enjoy that, it's great. You know, um, you certainly can also do it without that guidance. Um, and there are lots and lots of different ways and different approaches with, with loving kindness uh, that you can use. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is perhaps the right forum, but it, could you say a little bit more about what, what the difficulty might be if, if there isn't a guidance? What tends to happen? It's just very difficult for me to kind of structure the time and to think uh-huh. how to move forward. Or... You mean if you go through the different stages and things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm, it's a hard question, so I'm going to pass it to Jenny. <laughs> I just wanted to add that tomorrow we will say a little bit about resources, so we'll probably recommend, we haven't sat down and worked this out yet, but but there's some very good books and also some websites where you can, like the practice I led today is from the Centre for Mindful Self-Compassion and they have a website with quite a lot of online meditations that you can listen to, download. Uh, and there's a wonderful book by Sharon Salzberg called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, which I'll make sure to give you a reference to tomorrow. We'll put it on the board. And that actually goes through a very traditional way of doing the loving kindness practice and, and others. Um, but yes, I, I think with, with all these practices, structure and guidance can help. And with practice, it's also quite good sometimes to be able to do it without that so it's more portable you can do it anywhere uh, and and i think we just kind of get a sense of you know timing and when to move on sometimes there are you know um alarms or even apps you can buy that will ring a bell every five minutes or every 10 minutes so that would be one way of structuring it but yeah we'll, we'll give some uh, resources tomorrow Doing. Maybe time for one more, yes? Um, when meditating on the breath, lots of uh, mindfulness teachers say you should try not to control your breath uh-huh, yeah. or, or count the breath. Yeah, um, yeah. But personally, I find it much easier to start concentrating mm. if I'm controlling or counting the breath. So, counting the breath or sometimes labeling the breath in, out, rising, falling. Again, they're more like the initial concentration practices. Um, So I think if, particularly when the mind is very busy, it it can help to just drop in a soft count at the end of the out breath, up to five or maybe up to 10. 
But, you know, again, to, to, to drop that after a while, once we've settled, um, because otherwise we're, we're so fixated on that, it's harder to open up to a wider experience. Controlling the breath, um, it's very hard to be aware of our breath and not feel we're controlling it slightly. Um, sometimes at the beginning of a practice, I might take two or three slightly longer, more conscious breaths just to really partly just to connect with the breath and, and, and just as a kind of way of releasing tension um, and then let the body breathe by itself. But basically what I think is being often emphasized is this is a very different, mindfulness of breathing is very different to say yogic breathing or pranayama or something like that where you're really manipulating the breath. So I would see anything like that as just quite a useful initial way of stilling the mind and then once we're a little bit calmer to, to have a more open approach, does that does that make sense? And as you know, as Jake said, there are lots and lots of schools and techniques of meditation and really you just have to be your own guide. You know, what I think sometimes I said this in the group today, I think sometimes what happens is a meditation teacher finds something particularly useful, teaches that, and then it gets a little bit fixed. This is the one true way. And then another teacher's got a different way. It's also the one true way. Well, they can't both be right. So I think we have to find our own, you know, it's like some people suggest you must have your eyes open and other people say you must have them closed. To me, that says you choose, you work out what's more helpful. You know, I find having my eyes closed, it's, it's more likely I'll get a bit drowsy, with them open, I'm more likely to get distracted. So there's a balance. And, and with practice, we find which is most helpful. Perhaps we have time for one, one more question, if, if there's a last one. Thank you. Yeah. Again, I think it would be a really interesting thing, perhaps, at some time to you know explore in a, in a conversation. It's a bit difficult to sort of give you a to, to kind of sum that up. But just a, a few thoughts around that, really. Um, one thing that's really helpful with the mindfulness uh, courses and, and this approach is that, in a way, it no longer matters what what arises. So if there's a judgmental thought that that comes up. We might have the idea, as you said, and, and, and I really get what you say, they can be really powerful, they can be quite dominating. And so then the logical mind says, okay, well, what I need to do is find some way for these things not to arise. 
if I can do something that means they don't arise, then I'll be okay. But the mindfulness is also really saying, uh, the key thing is looking at the relationship to them. So when they really arise and they're seen with mindfulness, when there's more space around them, it really doesn't matter whether they're there or not. <laughs> Does that make sense? So it's an, it's an interesting exploration for, for you, but for all of us. Where is the power really? Is the power in the arising of the thought, or is the power in something else that then happens, as if to say, ah, you know, either that's true, or ah, this is really damaging thing that's arising, that's, this is causing a lot of trouble in my life. I need to get rid of it. But, but the, the thing is, ah, it's just, uh, you know when we say they're like clouds in the sky, we can extend that metaphor. Because clouds, of course, come in all sorts. Sometimes clouds are wispy little white clouds, and sometimes the whole, cla- the, you know, the whole sky is covered in really dark clouds. And those judgmental ones can be like that. But somehow, if we can trust that it's actually just seeing the nature of it, it's a, although it can feel powerful, it's an insubstantial thought. And then that means, in a way, it's okay whether they come or not. And if the practice is feeling, the practice is going well when they're not here, but it's not going well when they arrive, it's always a little bit tense. Because even if the judgmental thoughts go away for a little bit, you're thinking, okay, but they might be back. <laughs> yeah. But then, as also your question, you may, maybe sometimes it doesn't feel enough just to notice. Um, I, I think it's very helpful to have a very broad feeling of what practice is. I mean, there are all kinds of things I do that, in a way, are, kind of, are practices. One, and, you know, I know we're encouraging you not to do that really this weekend, but it's, it's to write. You know, with a lot of judgmental thoughts, you might just want to sort of write them all out. And then that can kind of externalize them. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know so much about it myself, but I know some of the more CBT practices, maybe, you know, about looking for counter-evidence and beginning to use a more rational mind to question the content of them. Um, and in, in the, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, yeah, we're more seeing the nature of them. But I, I think we can also be quite, quite open to exploring uh, other things. Sometimes it's really helpful to, to talk to people about stuff too. <laughs> I remember I've had that view in meditation. No, in meditation, this is going to sort everything out for me. And then, oh, actually, it was really helpful to talk to someone, you know. So there, there's... There's all kinds of things, and I think it's quite helpful not to see the practices. This is it. I'm just. This is the one way. And I'll pass on to Jenny. But one, one final thought is, um, for me, long walks because a massive part of my practice. A lot of judging thoughts. And just go go for a really long walk. The body is getting fresh air. I'm nourishing the body. They may be around for a bit. I'm tuning into what's around me. And I just find that somehow at the end of a long walk there's more perspective. But it's not a technique. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know if, that, if any of that, that, that helps a little bit. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is, you know, this is, I think, where some of the more loving-kindness practices or compassion practice really comes into their own and, and you know, really focusing on ourselves um, in, in that way. Um, and in, in the Mindful Self-Compassion course, with the course the practice I did earlier, they, they have some things they, they suggest. What would you say to a friend? What, what would a really wise and compassionate friend say to you about the thing you're judging yourself for? 
because usually we would never say to someone else the things we say to ourselves. So we can say, say we're giving ourselves a really hard time about a particular issue. Think, what would my, what would someone who really cared about me and was very compassionate say to me about this thing? Now, it doesn't mean they would say, oh, it doesn't matter. But they might say, wouldn't it be great if you did this a little differently? That's a, we did an exercise and with, with the mindful self-compassion people about the inner critic. And one of the things I was judging myself for was pr procrastination. That was the example I chose. So instead of, oh, for goodness sake, I've done it again. I always leave things to the last minute. Why don't I ever learn? It was more like... Wouldn't it be wonderful if you didn't always leave things to the last minute? You'd get so much more done. It's the same, you know, so it's, again, it's about the discernment. So sometimes the judgment is, is something that we're, we're making it an enemy. I mustn't judge. But sometimes there can just be a different voice that can come in. And sometimes it's just judging us, for, you know, something that's really toxic and not helpful. And then I think, you know, really putting it down, talking to people. So, as, as Jake said, there's a, a wide range of things that are practiced. And I think working with the inner judge is huge for most of us. Um, the, the person I'd most recommend to listen to online about this is Tara Brach. So we'll put her on our list tomorrow as well. She wrote a lovely book called Radical Acceptance um, and, and really goes into this in detail. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.